Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to our third panel of the day here at TV Archon 2021. Again, I'm your host, David Walters. So welcome to Science Fiction and Fantasy Fight Club. You know, the first rule of Science Fiction and Fantasy Fight Club is that there are no rules because this isn't Chuck Palahniuk's Fight Club. So I do ask that our panels keep it a clean fight and don't damage their money makers. You know their hands because that's how they make their money. So, uh, but before we begin and attempt to figure out where in the world we're going to go with this panel, because my gosh, it's going to go in every direction possible. Uh, let's have our panelists introduce themselves one after another. So, so Mr. Uh, Mr. David, I'm going to call you Mr. David since there's two Davids in here now. All we'll right. start with you. Uh, hi, I'm David Douglas. I'm author of a bunch of different series. Uh, most recently, starting with the Half Orcs, more. Recently, with Orbit Books, Shadow Dance, the Seraphim Trilogy, and the Keeper series, and a new one coming out starting next year with Vagrant Gods. And I write sword and sorcery fiction that's usually over the top and more resembles anime than real life. All right, Mike. Hey, I'm uh, Michael Mammy. I am the author of the Planet Side series with Harper Voyager, uh, which is three books. And my next book coming out is. Well, we don't know what the title will be yet, but it'll be out in probably early 2022. And it's kind of like a Kelly's Heroes in Space. All right, Jeremy. Uh, hello, I'm Jeremy Zahl. I'm the author of uh, the common series from Galantz. The first book, Stormblood, yay, came out uh, earlier last year, uh, about six months ago. And the sequel, Blind Space, is dropping in October. It's pretty much uh mashup of military science fiction space opera weird cyberpunk and your yeah, weird gothic cyberpunk basically michael describes it better than i can it's like his series but 15 times darker uh, according to him so True. and i think that's appropriate that's appropriate so uh yeah and so uh it's character driven stuff and it's coming at the sequels dropping later this year awesome sam I'm going to try to talk and hope that you can understand. <laughs> Sorry. Um, hi, everyone. Sam Hawk. Um, I am a fantasy writer. Um, my series of Poison Wars, um, uh, first book of which is City of Lies, uh, and the second is Hollow Empire, uh, which came out in. Bless sir. Sorry. I mean, it. My it was on the right uh, so I. <laughs> Had a very unstable internet connection uh, and only partially wrote this So, sorry. Hello. It's nice to see you. If I drop out, my apologies. <laughs> hey, Rob. Um, hi, I'm Rob J. Hayes. Uh, I'm a self published author. Am I the only self published author on this thing? I, no, we've got kind of. I that one well. uh, no, right. So, yes, I'm, I'm one of the self published, one of the two self published ones, uh, author of many books at this point including we'll go with the war eternal series which is there go. there's a picture of it behind me ah. uh and the martial art inspired which is probably more a bit more uh, relevant here uh multiple technique series including never die ah. and uh the book i released just yesterday pawns gambit but i don't have any physical copies of that one yet because amazon don't like me <laughs> Sorry, alexander <laughs> Hey guys, I'm Alex Darwin. Uh, I'm an, the author of uh, the Combat Code series. Um, we're, I'm currently working on the third book of that series. It's a mixed martial arts inspired uh, dystopian um, series. Yeah, that's that's it. Awesome. 
Sam, are you with us? No, it's still not. <laughs> we, had, we had the same issue with Scott Odin yesterday, and Christian Cameron was just asking if they if they live next to each other. Because bless it, Scott dropped out like thirty minutes in. <laughs> oh no! Can you can you hear me? At all? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to I want to start out with an, with an easy question: Who wins in a fight, J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis? <laughs> like the Jordan guys. <laughs> I feel like you know this is sacrilege. I feel like Tolkien is probably still writing the the background setting, so he gets his ass beat. <laughs> Are they using weapons? <laughs> uh, no, fisticuffs. Fisticuffs. How, how big are they? I have no idea. How big are? How big's Tolkien? How we big should, was Tolkien? How big was Lewis? We should go by their author photos only, so they're like both like really old and looking prestigious and fancy. Yeah. Pretty. I need a Two old dudes hugging each other with pencils. Yeah. What year are they fighting in? Are they like eighty? In their oh, prime. You need to establish first, are they being raised as zombies, as skeletons, as ghosts? <laughs> I think we're all forgetting that Tolkien was a soldier, so I'm pretty sure he would win. That's true. He actually yeah. did fight. Right. I, we'll, we'll go with that. That and C.S. Lewis was like a huge Tolkien fanboy himself, so he'd probably throw the fight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll go with another they one. We'll go with kind of... Huh? They probably boxed, right? Yeah. Like most wealthy private school boys in that era of England. Maybe. Yeah, Hold on, let me Maybe Google boxing career. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing that. I don't know if the entire hour talking about talking boxing uh, career. I like it. <laughs> Thank you, Google. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so I'll, I'll go. I'll go with live authors then. Uh, Stephen King or George R. R. Martin? Yeah, Martin, right? He's got the oh, yeah. advantage, surely. Yeah. No, no. King, King Scrappy. I'd go with him. <laughs> I could see King being pretty scrappy. He survived the. Uh, didn't he get hit by a car? Yeah. He did, yeah. He's he like It's a tough guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right, I'll go with one last one because this is just stupid. I, I decided to write them down. I thought they were funny. Uh, one last one Han Solo or Captain Kirk? <laughs> I mean, that's solo. That's not even hard. Totally no. yeah, 100%. Solo shoots first. <laughs> Come on. Yes, <laughs> Although, to be honest, can anyone survive the Kirk two handed chop? That's what I was going to say. This thing. <laughs> I mean, Solo yeah. hangs out with like a Wookiee all the time. I'm pretty sure he's used to way worse roughhousing than that. <laughs> did you find Did you find the uh, boxing stats yet, David? I did not Google. I, I can find out right now. Disappointed. You said you were going Open to. Open boxing <laughs> career. All right, go, go. What we got? Um, Captain Kirk beat that. Li what's the lizard called that he that he, he beat hand to hand combat? The, uh, uh, apparently, the there is a Nicholas Holt token that's a boxer, which is ruining all of the searches. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure, Alex. Uh, does anybody else know the answer to that question? No, he beats up that giant lizard. It's called like a gore or gar or something. Now, this is all before my time. I'll let you guys. 
I'm not a Trekkie, so I'm biased. Like I when the stuff was released. Yeah, you I'm can't not, write science fiction Trekkie and not know about Kirk's fight against lizard guy in the mountainside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another one you're talking about, but I have no idea what the lizard was called. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a bad SFF person and have never seen any episode of Star Trek. No, I've only yeah, seen that no fight person. for people to make fun of, so I cannot tell you the legitimate lizard's name. <laughs> That's it. I, I was I was kind of like forced to watch Star Trek when I when I was homesick in elementary school because my dad would record it and watch it when he was off from work, and so I'd just be at home like clammed up on a couch watching Star Trek. You're not forced to watch Star Trek. You're, you're given the gift of Star Trek. You have your eyes forced. You have your eyes forced open like in a clockwork orange or what? Tony <laughs> in the chat is suggesting Solo is wearing a red shirt, but that just feels blasphemous to me. So I don't think we should acknowledge that. <laughs> I think it's a great question, Shelly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, all right, so there, we'll, we'll get to legit questions now. So those two pertains to how do you bring real life combat or martial arts into your stories? Because I know several of you do, or you have to, or you may, maybe you don't, but you want to. Alex, we'll start with you. How do you bring real life combat or martial arts into your story? Yeah, so and that's pretty much what what my book revolves around is is unarmed combat, and it's very heavily inspired by by real combat with with a few uh, fantastical elements. Um, I I take a lot from I like watch a lot of fights. I don't know if you guys are are fight fans in any sort, whether it be boxing or mixed martial arts, but I not as much lately. Um, but I watch a ton of fights. Um, I mean, I practice martial arts too. I teach martial arts, but really from like watch, even the down to the the promotional aspects of fights, like how they, if you watch like a UFC, like how do they promote the fights? Like what do they concentrate on beforehand? It's like, it's very similar to like creating a, a character. Like they create, they create stakes with the promos. They try to build up a character and create stakes in people's heads. Just because if you just watch a fight between two people you don't know, there's, you don't, you don't really care. You might be like, oh, that guy knocked the guy out or that guy submitted the other guy or girl, um, but you don't care about it. So if you watch how some of these big promoters uh, promote their fights, it's, it's really interesting. Again, it's, it's about them, how they create the stakes. They, you know, they really elaborate on the backstories of the characters and, and make it, you know, create an underdog. They might create an underdog character and then create like someone who's favored to win so that's a big part of it. As far as the actual, you know, writing the scenes, I kind of walk through it in my head um, from a first, I write in third person, but I walk through it from a first person perspective. Um, and then I, I kind of just go <laughs> and then <laughs> I, I throw it all up and then, you know, everything else comes out in editing. But usually um, I, I try to try to view it from a first person perspective. Sam? Yeah, I um, I, I happen to write a series in which my main characters are not fighters, <laughs> despite my um, my personal interest in, in martial arts. Um, so in in my case, the the Poison War series, because neither of my two point of view characters are really martial arts trained or interested, and they're living in a society in which violence isn't really celebrated in a way that it um, might be in you know, quite a few other fantasy societies, um, which made the the challenges were really about when they get involved in fights, making them making them a realistic portrayal of how somebody with minimal training can respond to um, physical threats, um, 
which is a different sort of exercise to doing something like Alex is doing where you're trying to make a fight exciting between two skilled combatants. Um, so like when I'm, when I'm writing fight scenes in general, I will, I want them to be realistic in the sense that obviously there's nothing more annoying than as a martial artist reading a fight scene that people are doing. Um, so I do, you know, make my husband do things with me. <laughs> so we, we will reenact, we will reenact scenes to make sure they work physically with the surroundings or whatever, um, to make sure I'm not being um, unrealistic there. But largely speaking, um, you can't make fights boring and there's a, it, there's a big challenge when you're writing fight scenes versus when you're watching them. So um, like Alex, I watch a lot of, a lot of fighting uh, and the visual factor gives you a huge advantage. It's way more fun to watch people do physical stuff, exciting physical combat than it is to read about it most of the time. Because we, when you're lacking that visual element, you can't just describe exactly what people are doing or it's incredibly boring. So yeah, it's like, it's like Alex said, it's about using the fight to tell story which means you need to be invested in the people um, and you need to be thinking about how to make the fight interesting for a reader. There's nothing more off-putting than reading people describing the names of, of moves as they're coming into a fight scene or, uh, or just feeling like you're just watching a, a, list of, a list of activities that people are doing. It's, there's, there's nothing about that that's interesting. You can get away with a lot more empty fighting in, in the visual media, I think. Um, in, the, in the story, you have to be making sure that it's all about the characters and how they're responding. Um, and yeah. Instead, instead of just saying he used his fist to punch the guy in the face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he used his foot in a motion that kicked him. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's gotta be about how the characters are feeling and how they're responding to the fight and what's brought them to the fight. And, um, uh, and yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of, talk there's a whole bunch of tricks you can do to make things more interesting on the page. Um, rather than just describing moves and, and some of that is about being interesting with how you're using surroundings and how you're using um, uh, sort of items and weapons and props around you to kind of give um, give something different to the reader when they're reading it, especially if you've got multiple fight scenes in the same book, which you don't want to sound famous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so Mike, so it's so a question to you, so you know, in the similar vein, but as far as like from, from a combat standpoint, how have you taken maybe some of your experience and put it into your novels? Uh, yeah, I, I don't write a lot of individual fight scenes. I do write a lot of combat scenes and um, having spent 27 years in the army and traveled to every place on the planet where you don't want to be. Um, I, I try to bring that across. The first thing with a combat scene is if your character understands what's going on too much is completely unrealistic. Because the biggest thing that anyone will tell you about a combat scene is you do not know what's happening. It's just confusing. You could take 10 people who were there and after the fact, if you if you go brief, if you take a briefing from all of them and say, hey, what happened at this moment? You get 10 different answers. And that's perfect for writing. Because when you write that in, the confusion and the fact that your character doesn't know what's going on clearly is it adds tension to this story. It adds a lot, you know, the fact that he doesn't know. So what I tell people to do is, is narrow the focus as much as you can, because it's not about the fight. It's about the character. And I think, you know, both Alex and Sam have said that it's about the character and how it affects the character and not knowing what's going to happen next is it has a huge effect on the character. Um, 
you know, so so when you try to and the thing is, is you've got this. It's hard to do as a writer because you've got this huge fight scene in your head because it has to make sense. The actual scene is happening. A combat scene is happening. There's 27 things happening, but your character might see two and a half of them and misinterpret one. And that's what matters. What matters is the emotion that it brings to your character, <clears throat> the position it puts them in and then what their decisions are and what they're going to do next. Um, and then the second thing that I try to do is probably bring a little more fear into it. Um, you know, because if you're in combat, everyone's scared. You, you just are, you know, even if, even if, oh, hey, that missed me by 10 feet. No, a bullet snapped over my head and I went, holy crap, someone's shooting at me. Mm-hmm. And that's the emotion, right? The emotion isn't clinical at that point. The emotion is, holy crap, someone's trying to kill me. And how you get past that emotion, how your character gets past that emotion and acts anyway, because of course they're the hero and they got to do that. But you know, that emotion is pretty real. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe, uh, maybe not taking real life experience, but you know, David, Jeremy, Rob, do y'all have any, anything to add about how y'all bring maybe some kind of, you know, real life experience to it? Or is it, is it kind of like, you know, what Alex and Sam were talking about being able to, to visualize it with like real, life fighting or anything like that um that's definitely what i do in my case i've you know michael's military career is longer is older than i am so i don't have too much experience in that department but i do what they were saying what michael and sam were saying about narrowing the folk narrowing the focus as much as possible making things as tight as possible and so it's not so much about the battle it's not so much about the combat itself it's about filtered through characters about what they're feeling the fear what's at stake um what's what they have to lose the like if they have friends on the side if they've got people they know on the enemy side what's going to happen next and i try so i try to filter things as if i was seeing it kind of in the same philosophy that i subscribe to is through a first person shooter style where it's not so much you can't see everything you have a l- limited scope and you anything that's coming at you is directly affecting you not the bigger scope of the battle uh when we're talking about larger combat scenes and so i try to really th- make it really gritty and on edge like you know about splinters spraying uh it's about bullets snapping above your head it's about you know you can feel like um sweat trickling down your back like it's those emotions it's those immediate visceral responses that i'm looking for um that's why i love jay abercrombie's fight scenes so much because he has no interest whatsoever in uh in doing any sort of grand battle it's all about the visceral moment it's about the teeth and the mud and the blood and the sweat and the hair and that's what i'm looking for when i'm writing fight scenes is to really dilute that experience and filter it through one person and that's why um, I like I, I write so many of them because I think it's less about you know making any grand statement uh, you know or about uh, doing battlefield tactics or anything like that because I'm not really interested and I honestly like I've got no combat experience but what Michael was saying that when you are in that moment any sort of plans or any vast just mental monologues that you might have go out the window and holy crap someone's shooting at me that takes over and. At least that's a sort of what I subscribe to. And so I do try to make fight scenes as punchy and visceral as possible and make you really care about what's going to happen. And the best way to do that, in my experience, is to just filter it through character as much as possible. 
and get really make you care that way. That's yeah, my perspective. David, I mean, the question over it being realistic, in that I think there's a difference between it being realistic and it being believable, which is yeah. my fights aren't realistic. I mean, Voidbreaker has a guy that can shoot fireballs in his hands, fighting a shapeshifter, fighting a bird assassin, wielding a scythe made of shadow. There's nothing even remotely realistic about this fight. <laughs> the question is, is when the person reading it believes it, and if they're going to believe it, it's because what you are conveying to them is something that they can grab a hold of, which is either going to be things like emotions or a narrative. So if you, have a, you want them to feel like they're in the fight, you hit them with the emotions, the fear, Michael talked about it, is a great one. The uncertainty, trying to find out what's going on, the desperation as a fight starts to shift or they start feeling themselves either not doing things right or people start falling or getting injured. Or you give them a narrative that someone can understand and you work with that. If a fight is, here's someone that is going up against someone they cannot beat. Person A cannot handle person B. They are bigger, they are stronger, they are faster. You give them that narrative and then you make everything play into the narrative where people, even if they can't quite see exactly what's going on like you would in an action scene, when you just start describing the individual technical stuff, the dodges, the parries, the hits, you're weaving that as a narrative. The person that is smaller than the big dude is not blocking attacks and standing strong. He's dodging, he's weaving, he's parrying, he's frantically ducking under hits he can't block. Even if that's not realistic to what actual medieval combat was in the slightest, if people feel they get swept up in the fight and are enjoying it and get their, their bloods going as the hero's barely surviving, realistic starts to fall away as long as you've got them in your hands and you're just carrying them along. And for me, it's usually a desperation of let's, we're, we're going, we're going forward. Don't look back. Don't, don't think about what just happened. Some shapeshifter just turned a guy to glass and shattered him. Don't think about that. We're moving forward. Uh, so that's mine, I guess I would say. I gotcha. What about you, Rob? Uh, okay, well, I mean, first, I think it's uh, important to take into account that I have no combat experience <laughs> whatsoever. I mean, I did karate when I was 10 years old, so that's, what, almost 30 years ago now. Uh, <laughs> and I did a little bit of Viking reenactment about 10 years ago or so, where I stood in a shield wall and got kicked the shit out of a bit. That's, that's it. <laughs> um but I, I, I watch uh, a lot of uh, martial art films and, and anime, and uh, I, I used to watch a lot of wrestling. So I try to go for the spectacle. Uh, I certainly don't try to make things realistic as such. Um, I try to make them cinematic um, so that viewers, readers can sort of essentially view it in their mind, um, can, can see it that way. Um, but the other thing I do do is I... I tailor the the fight to to the character or characters that are involved in it so in something like never die i have a lot of masters you know of their their arts having jewels um and for for those it is a bit more clinical um because these guys are like you know highly trained they've spent their entire lives you know in combat uh, and training for it so when they get down to the sort of like the actual fight scene of it they they're very sort of clinical where the movements go and and adapting to it um but then i also try to make that fight itself a story um with the characters going through their own sort of arc so you might have this this master who's starting off with this very uh 
clear idea of how they're going to go into this fight and as they're sort of they're going through it they're suddenly realizing that this isn't working they're they're not they're not winning this fight and they're, they're sort of like the fear starts to to come through so they start sort of very composed and by the end of it they might be ragged and sort of like you know desperately trying to scramble away and everything um and try to to tell a story throughout each specific fight scene so that even if you are being quite clear about what's happening in it you, the the readers will still get connected to the characters and to what's happening um and on the other side of things if you're going for a battle i just tend to have it as chaos nobody knows what the fuck is going on <laughs> blood the swords the shit it's, it's all going horribly horribly wrong and and people are screaming so then, then every battle goes <laughs> exactly <laughs> Uh, that, that's for like you know if if you've just got some some chump standing in a in a shield wall trying to survive that's that's more the sort of thing it's very different to like a, a duel between two masters who have been practicing their art for like you know sixty odd years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take uh, Travon Cook's question. Uh, do you find it harder including non-humans in your fight scenes? So animal types, extraterrestrials, demons, etc. And he points out David's uh, the keepers about non-humans involved in battles. David, if you want to take I guess I can go with it. Uh, <laughs> I freaking love it because now I'm coming from the perspective of I've written and published 27, something like that, novels. And by that point, trying to keep interesting person A tries to stab person B gets hard. <laughs> it gets very, very hard. So when I can throw in like, oh, here's a crazy monster that instead of trying to slash or parry, it's trying to bite you or you know rip you apart with like you know jaws and teeth uh i get to do different things i get to do weird things and i get to shake up you know a shield wall against another shield wall is one thing a shield wall as a t-rex stampedes toward you is a very different encounter (laughs) and it's a lot easier to make something a spectacle which is what i like to do if i do any sort of major big battle like there's obviously smaller skirmishes and individual fights throughout but when you get to the big epic i want readers to remember this spectacle is great and spectacle is infinitely easier to do you know when it's a dragon that's trying to eat someone and not you know boring old humans which obviously you can do even that amazing but like just from a experience perspective i i'll I'll take new at this point over anything sam sam dropped off but in her book she's got a scene where um so she has it's a it's a dual lead book this is her second book I'm reading it right now. That's why I know. The um, and in one of the characters, the female, the female character, the sister and brothers are the two lead characters, um, and the sister character is handicapped. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a long illness. She can't fight. She can't do anything, and she gets attacked by a bird. Right, and there's a debate whether or not the bird is magically controlled. Just a regular, like raven-sized, angry ass bird, mm-hmm. and. It's awesome. It's a great scene because neither the bird nor the person involved in the scene are particularly tough, but they're fairly matched. Was it a goose? Um, then it's all over. Yeah. It, and it's, it's great because, you know, because she does a super job of portraying this character who never fights and never really feels physical pain from being struck, being pecked and clawed at by a bird. And it's mm-hmm. very short and very brutal. Um, and, and, you know, and there's some questions on whether someone magically spelled the bird to go attack the character or not that, that make it interesting. But the fight itself, 
you know, for the one, one and a half pages that it is, is just great. Even though there is nobody in that scene that's actually a fighter. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter who or what is fighting if you get the emotion right. Anybody else? I find it, I find it easier. My, my book has primarily humanoid characters, so there's nothing too out of the realm of ordinary, but I do have like mechs. And for the fight scenes where the, the mechs, which are greatly more powerful than the human, humanoid characters um, are involved, I find those actually easier to write kind of along the lines of what uh, Michael was talking about, where if, if there's a greater disparity in the either skill or power or strength between the combatants, um, it, it the scene just seems to flow more easily um, because both combatants are kind of just doing their thing. I find it harder to really craft the scene where it's equally matched um, opponents because it's it should be more of a back and forth, more of a standstill. It could fall into the realm of boredom in re in a real you know uh, at least a hand to hand fight. Um, if opponents are equally matched, it it can often end up to viewers even in you know watching a mixed martial arts fight as a fairly boring fight. A lot of the most evenly matched fights, the best fights are not exciting at all because it could just be two guys or girls grinding grinding up against each other or, or just like avoiding strikes, um, dodging, parrying. So again, I find it easier when there's almost a, a non-humanoid character, in my case, a mech um, to, to mix things up uh, um, from, from the other sort of fight. That has like a, a distinct advantage. Right. Yeah. Rob, Jeremy? Um, go, you go, go for it. Okay. I, I actually don't have any in my first book. I don't have any non-humanoid fights. I do in the second. I definitely do in the second where a bunch of angry aliens fight the uh, main characters. But what I was going to say is there's a anime series and a manga called Beastars where <laughs> and in the it's it's actually really good like you wouldn't like the it premise is. it looks a bit iffy but it's re it's awesome anyway the all, all the main characters are all animals so humanoid horses uh komodo dragons wolves lions that sort of thing and so they actually do use their animal traits in combat scenes uh, what makes that series interesting uh the best thing about every single fight there's something personal going on whether it's between the you know between a herbivore and a carnivore which is pretty much like the where society gets split uh down the middle it's between uh different takes it's or it's about something that deep-rooted history that's what makes the fight interesting it's not so much the their abilities it's not so much what the it's not so much um what they can do what they can bring to the fight it's why they're there it's why they're why they're fighting what they have to lose and the, that, to me, regardless of what species is on either side or what type of human is or what, you know, the spectrum is of the fighters, like, that's the thing that makes things interesting to me. And so when I'm reading uh, the manga series, I'm not even paying attention to what animals have, what abilities. You know, there are some, the Komodo dragons have venom and that sort of thing, but I'm not even thinking about that. I'm thinking, why are they there? What are they fighting for? And so... To answer your question, I don't really think there's any. It's harder. Uh, I think it's all about who's who's on either side of the fight. In a totally different aside, quite there. Do Komodo dragons have venomous bites, or are they? It, I, 
In this series, they do. And it's 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 among them. Like there's no there's no logic to it. Rob. Sure, I, I think they do. I'm sure, like they, they, they I'm sure I've read uh, a thing where they're like they, they don't have a venomous bite or anything, but the like the the, the the bacteria and everything in their mouths is so sort of oh, like, yeah, yeah. They bite something, uh, yeah. you still die from it. Yeah, I could be wrong. I don't know. That's less dramatic, though, isn't it? But I personally, I, I've actually just been thinking about this, and I don't have a lot of non-human combatants in. Any of my books, for some reason, I've not really done it. Uh, the only one I can really think of off the top of my head is in City of Kings, where I have trolls um, uh, in a cave. And uh, I found it incredibly easy because I decided to structure the entire thing more like a um, like a horror film or something. So, you know, all the lights go out and there's just these huge monsters just grabbing people and pulling them away and crunching bones and everything. Um, Rob, doesn't, doesn't Never Die have uh, a bunch of the, the uh, yokai? I, well, it does, but they're, they're, most of them are, are humanoid. Um, just like the ball, the uh, ball of um, what's well, the... that, that's just a tangle of eels. That's not really a fight. <laughs> right. oh, yeah, yeah. Crawling down a hill, crushing <laughs> people as it goes. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I just feel like the the setting um, can can cover a, a, a lot of that sort of uh, failings. You know, set, set something in the in the in the in the dark and have it just as people running around going, I don't know what's happening, and then suddenly the friend side gets killed. And, uh, uh, but yeah, no, I, I don't really have many non-human things apart from a tangle of eels, which I call a dragon because why not? Why not? <laughs> nobody, nobody really knows what a dragon looks like, right? Exactly. <laughs> it looks like a tangle of eels. Exactly. Why not? This one does. Uh, <laughs> All right, so. Uh, Go to this question next. Share your favorite fight scene from a movie or book or both, and tell us what makes it great for you. I love the fencing scene from The Princess Bride. Um, <laughs> oh, it's so good! It's just, just an absolute classic, perfect uh, one take fight scene where everything is just done exquisitely. The actors trained with the best fences in the world. Um, to get it that right and they required them to become like amazing princes just to get that scene right and they had to do it all in one one continuous um take basically um which is incredible because the fight goes for oh, i don't know how many minutes but it's quite a long one it covers a huge range of terrain um and it's fantastic because it's not only visually beautiful watching the sword work um but obviously there's witty banter going on um there's character reveals happening at the same time um, they don't use just just the swords, like um, what I was saying earlier about keeping it interesting um, to observe multiple fights. They're using things around them and a bit where they jump through and swing around the archway. And, um, and the sword trivia that they're talking about as they go is all real stuff. Um, like they're talking about the different defences and so on. It's all real genuine um, sword fencing uh, theory and, and practice. So you're learning as well as watching. But it's just, it's, it's fun, it's beautiful. Um, it works, every, every move is a real, is a real move. Um, and you learn things about the characters as you go. So that's, that's my favorite. Who else? That, uh, that scene from, um, I recently rewatched Gladiator, which is one of my favorite movies. Um, it's the scene where, where the, uh, where Maximus and his crew are supposed to be playing like the barbarians of 
somewhere and they're fighting the legionnaires and they're being cast as as a certain as kind of like the bad guys to the the crowd within the arena and i just feel like the fight scene works so well because then and maximus is still in the skies now you don't know the stakes are just so high because you know he's this famous uh this famous general he's still in the skies so that's like behind the scenes you know that's something that could happen and then they're ex again it's about expectations to the crowd um they're expected to die you know to these chariot riders the legionnaires so i just thought that was such a cool scene um the action of course was incredible uh you know the, the cinematography was incredible but i think again it's the the stakes um of maximus's identity being hidden um along with them being you know set up essentially to be the underdogs where they're supposed to be crushed by the legionnaires and of course they they end up winning that i really love that one i've got two but also i'll be really short that the uh the beach scene in um saving private ryan <clears throat> just the pure confusion and what they do with sound where the where the bomb goes off and then he can't hear anything else, so he's in, so you get this sense of disorientation. You know, there's a guy running by carrying his own arm, um, and, and so it's it's completely brutal, um, and it you don't really know everything that's going on. You're just getting it in snatches and pieces, and I love that. And then the other thing that I really really like is um, so the the tank battle scene in Fury, not the scene itself but how it's focused internally and then he comes out of the tank at the end and you see dead guys just you know for yards and, and, and football fields full of dead guys that you never realized there were that many guys while the fight was going on because it was so tight to the character um that the, you know they were in this battle and all they knew was we got to keep fighting or we're going to die and then you get out afterwards and you see what they did and what they faced and you never really had that perspective until you got to look at it after, which I thought was really, really cool. Anybody else? Jeremy, David, Rob? I'm not sure it's my favorite, but it's the only one I could come to mind. Uh, the sword fight at the end of Rob Roy, uh, a 1995 film with Liam Neeson. Uh, and the point is that he's, Liam Neeson's character's got this big old two-handed sword and he's in a duel against this guy that has a much quicker, smaller sword and Liam just, he cannot hit this guy. He's just, he's used to crazy chaotic battlefields and this is this strict duel and he's just swinging. He cannot hit and this opponent is just knifing him up, giving him wound after wound. And by the end of it, he's just bleeding. He's exhausted. He's clearly lost. And there are people that have placed bets on the fight. And this is by far away my favorite part by the end. And you can see them collecting their money while Liam is still alive. And he even sees this and just the level of just doubt and disrespect. And even as you're watching this, you're like, I'm not sure he's going to win this. I know he's the main character, but like, I mean, they're collecting the money. He's never even hit him once. And he ends it with just like, he just like catches the sword in his hand. It like mutilates his hand down to the bone, but he just like holds this little rapier weapon and it's like chops the guy in half with one swing. And it's like the most satisfying kill ever. <laughs> so that would be mine. <laughs> Um, I think the one that always comes to mind uh, for me when somebody asks like a question like that is uh, there's, I think it's the first fight scene in the film Hero, um, and it's between uh, Donnie Yen and Jet Li, um, and it, it's because it's just so 
beautiful. Uh, it's it's set in like a in, a in a tavern, an open air tavern, and the rain's just falling down, and and they do pretty much the entire fight scene almost in their head as it's not actually happening. It's just they're they're staring at each other and imagining the moves, how it's all going to go, and then uh, and then they finally sort of doing it. It's beautiful, and it, it is. It's just it's so gorgeously shot, and it's between two absolute masters of of you know what they do. It's just it's glorious to watch. Jeremy, I've got to go through a few unorthodox. Uh, I've got an unorthodox selection actually. Um, the first one uh, I'll just run through really quickly is a hallway scene in the movie Old Boy, the Korean one, not the American remake. Let's not even get into that. Um, uh, it's it's literally shot in one take. The dude's got a hammer. That's it. But he's so full of rage that he doesn't care. Like these guys are coming at him, he doesn't care. He's just hitting them, hitting them, just going past them all in one glorious take. Another scene is um, in Children of Men. It's not so much a combat scene, but it's done in one take. And I come from a film background, and so I kind of no these. I notice a lot of these the technique more than the actual fight. And uh, main Clive Owen's character is literally running through a battlefield to get to get to this girl who and who's one of the only people in the world who can now is pregnant uh and it's just frantic like there's guns going off there's rub buildings being destroyed there's rubble coming around but it's all done in one take right behind him at one point a single fleck of blood splashes on the actual camera lens and it doesn't actually get wiped away like they actually continue it while they're going along and it's just and it, it actually feels like you're smack right in the middle of the battle and the, the character is, as far as I can recollect, never actually really fights. He doesn't kill anyone or hurt anyone, but he's actually just going through this battle and it's just breathtaking to watch. Like I saw that and I was holding my breath the entire time. But one of my other f favorite fight scenes, uh, because of how unorthodox it is, is in the first Sherlock Holmes movie where Robert Dower Jr. is just beating up this guy, not really beating it up, in this um, Irish pub or something like that, and this is a hunk of a man who's literally meat, just made of meat, and he's just staring at him, and they all think, oh, surely he's going to win. Surely the other guy's just going to squash this puny, uh, this other guy. And Sherlock Holmes is just seeing what he's going to do, and he plans it like 15 steps ahead. He like gets, makes his ears rings, he trips him up, he kicks him backwards, he headbutts him, all this stuff, and it plays out in slow motion, one at a time, and then afterwards he actually re does executes the moves and it's done in like three seconds and just kicks the guy down out of the pit and everyone just goes quiet. And it's like, where did that come from? And Sherlock Holmes is like, get my work's done here and just takes a bottle of booze and just walks away. And it's just hilarious because it's just executed so well. Like it's just a master of their craft. So yeah, I, I really- fun, fun trip too, right? Because you can slow it down so you can actually see what the hell's happening. Um, yeah. When realistically, yeah. when we're talking about realism before, like obviously fights don't generally go for very long. They're usually over in a flurry of confusion. Um, and so, yeah, you can use visual tricks. I think it's really telling that we're all picking movies, not books. Um, <laughs> like I said, fights are better than <laughs> I'm going to add an extra one because Jeremy reminded me, but um, of obscure fight scenes um, in Gross Point Blank, which I don't know if anybody Oh, that's good. It, is a great movie. Uh, sorry, child interrupting. Um, there is a, there's a fight scene between John Cusack and Benny the Jet, 
uh, in a uh, school corridor with lockers. Um, and little known fact that Benny Jet and John Cusack run a martial arts school together. They're really good friends. Um, and they ran that fight scene as them just literally just going at each other. It wasn't a choreographed fight scene. Um, so it's really fun to watch just as a proper, this is what fighting looks like um, when it's not necessarily, you know, carefully choreographed with every move planned and every camera shot um, working. And um, it's like a, it's sort of a contrast to um, some, some of my other favourite scenes in, you know, Jackie Chan films and so on that I've watched obsessively growing up where these things are like ballets. They're amazingly choreographed and they use so many props and they're funny and clever and interesting to watch. Um, and yeah, I just don't think we have um, quite the same options in written form. There's the other fight scene, gross point blank, right at the end, where they're just like they're doing anything they can to kill each other and they're throwing TVs at each other. It doesn't <laughs> matter, man. Just, anything you can do to try and land a blow. <laughs> it's a great uh, movie, by the way. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely watch it. Awesome. Uh, next question comes from Nick. Uh, what is the strangest thing that you've had to research in writing a fight or battle scene? I won't share that because I'll get arrested. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you have to. Yeah, I, don't, <laughs> I don't do but, any of that. I make it all up. <laughs> David, Alex? If I'm researching stuff, it's usually really boring things like, what in the world would they be eating right now? Or <laughs> What clothes would they be wearing that makes any sense for this time period and setting I've created? Uh, usually I don't need to research the fight scene. For me, the fight scenes are I go on a walk and imagine in my head 50 times and then a month later I write it. So, uh. Yeah, for me, uh, so uh, Combat Coats does have a large fan base of martial artists specifically who kind of practice martial arts. And I do use some of the... Uh, Japanese terminology for certain like techniques like judo uh, as well as traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu and that's oftentimes uh, although I, I teach Brazilian jiu-jitsu I don't use that terminology um, so often I have to go and make sure I've got my my shit together um, so people aren't going to call me out on it um, down the line as well as the actual I guess you could call it uh, choreographing of, of the action I, I really need to go over it and i guess that's less research and kind of just playing it over in my head and and making sure it it works um so that people aren't gonna call me up and um get mad <laughs> yeah when jits guys know that you're a jit person writing stuff they're very very careful yes, to analyze the, 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 bar is, sure the, stand, the standards <laughs> right and i've gotten angry i've gotten angry notes from martial arts practitioners being like very specific about something that no that would never work didn't you you know and I'm like ah well there is a big element of sci-fi fantasy here guys it's not like <laughs> these aren't actually humans fighting so I I always have a pass like I think one someone I had like a in my book there was like a ten year old kid who was I think he's like three hundred pounds it's just something and they were like that would never happen I was like well it's not a human so. There you go. <laughs> It's not. It's it's called fiction, as it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of what David was saying before. It's about it's about making something realistic in a realistic book sense, which is not the same as realistic. Yeah, but so but but it life. depends on where you come at it from as a reader. A lot of that is where you come at it as from a reader, right? Yeah, I, I yeah, can't so watch it. most war movies because the <laughs> anomalies in them 
are so ridiculous that I get to the point where I can't suspend disbelief and then I'm out. Yeah. And I think you got to do that. But, you know, and everybody's going to have that. The more you actually knew about a certain style of fighting, the harder it would be to, to read somebody who didn't write it really, really well, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And if we're, we're going to personal bugbears. Mine is tiny, little, skinny women um, delivering things with more force than is possible um, without, without a supernatural element. Um, because as a tiny little woman who largely has fought much, much larger people, it's like this room is very representative, right? The one girl in the room full of dudes. Um, this is my entire, you know, now 35 years of martial arts experience. <laughs> um, <laughs> so like, I'm very, I'm very keyed into what, um, to what your realistic limitations are when you are much smaller than somebody. Um, and yeah, my, my personal thing is watching like, does, does the girl have to have, do, do we have to cast an actress with, you know, little tiny twig arms to be delivering these super powerful blows? Like That's why, uh, that's why Gina Carano in uh, Mandalorian is, is yeah. perfect, perfect casting. Yeah, you yeah. Her and you're like, she's, yeah. she's a fighter. She could mess you up. Like, yeah. she would. I'm not saying that yeah. people can't be fighters because of course they can, but they fight differently and they deliver force differently and you have to use, um, you have to use force differently when you are much smaller than somebody. Um, all right. So next question we've got is from uh, from Book Invasion. Do you construct fight scenes with the final move in mind first and work backwards, or do you write it beat by beat sequentially? We're using big words. Sequentially. Oh. <laughs> my laundry is ready. Apparently, that's mine. That's my laundry. Sorry, right outside my office. The, uh, it's going to go on for like another ten seconds too. Um, I'll talk while it's happening because that makes the most sense. Um, the uh, both, both for me. I write it. I write it beat by beat sequentially because it has to tell the story. Um, but I know how it's going to end because if I didn't know how it's going to end, we wouldn't be there. I mean, you know, the good guy. The, the, the yeah, no, I know how. It's a fight scene. You have to know who wins going into it. Because your whole book is, I, I don't understand the question. I'm sorry. I don't see how you could do it without knowing who wins. Because, you know, if the hero dies, the book's I, over. I, I've I've killed people that were supposed to live in fight scenes all the time. Yeah, so. really? okay. Well, there yeah, you go. Someone who goes into it, in, into entire books with a very much a gardener uh, ideology. Yeah, that's a I answer. have no idea what's going on in most of my books until I write it. <laughs> My characters don't surprise me. I surprise them. Uh, <laughs> well, Somebody else said that. You stole that, brother. Yeah, Joe, the probably said it. Yeah, I did. Um, no, I, it sounds like you know, a bit of a threat, though, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, no, I, I do plan uh, plan how I want them to end because I don't personally, like, I prefer to write fight scenes um, with another, with a more subtext, plot subtext to them. So if someone... You know, we've had a lot of, we've, we, okay, we've sustained a lot of losses. We've been beat down. We haven't had a victory. How do we make this fight scene as epic as possible? How do we make it like it feel like a win? How do we make it feel like we've gained something? And so I always try to make sure that I'm incorporating that other element into it. And so I do very much construct fight scenes with a final idea in mind. Yes, this is what's going to happen in the end. This is the outcome. These are the losses we're going to suffer. This is what's going to 
uh, results in whether we lost or won. This is the f emotional feeling we're going to get. Um, yes, during the fight scenes, I've had a few characters, you know, be injured, you know, like this other person that was supposed to get the hand cut off, did get the hand cut off and a few other things like that. But for the most part, I do very much plan what's going to happen by the end, like the, re the emotional result of the scene, like what you are so, as a reader are supposed to get out of it and what it means for the plot is very much constructed. Um, obviously, you know, I, as Rob was saying, like, I think that what he was referring to is a garden. I think that people tend to imagine either you plan every word, every paragraph out meticulously, or you just completely, uh, you know, wing it. And I don't think it's either one for the most part. I think that there's a spectrum and I think that people, you know, th some stuff is planned, some stuff is not. And it's just a matter of where you sit. And personally, I sit in the idea that I plan if it's going to be a fatality or a victory and, but beat by beat, I generally try to wing it. But the end result, that doesn't change that set in concrete. Anybody else? Rob, Alex? I, mean, <laughs> I, 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 I partly agree with, with Jeremy and partly don't. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I do agree that I think it is a bit of a spectrum. You, you know, you, you do sort of like, you do tend to have sometimes an idea of what you, 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 where you're going when you go into a fight. Um, but I have written entire ones that just came out of nowhere. Entire fights that just like came out of nowhere and I had no idea what was going on, how they were going to end. I was just writing it. Uh, and then, I, you know, we'll see how it goes at the end. I mean, yeah, okay, I usually have a, an idea that this is halfway through the book, so the main character probably not going to die just yet. But, yeah, like I've, I've regularly got into entire... Uh, fights or just scenes or chapters not knowing what I'm doing and seeing where it takes me. <laughs> I wing everything. I started out as that and slowly like like particularly the first like five or six books I wrote, I my plans would go out the window every like few chapters and just kind of went and I had characters I killed off. I wasn't planning on killing off. I had characters that lived that were planning on killing off. And then like everything I plotted afterwards, I'd have to rewrite. I am not that writer anymore, generally, because uh, that makes it a nightmare to try and plan more than one book ahead if uh, you never even know who's alive at the end of it. Um, and you have to sell it to the publisher. With an you got to sell it to the publisher. I mean, <laughs> I'll still every now and then be like, you know what? I think it's time this character dies, even when I wasn't planning on it. But at this point, I will generally have the core scene in mind the confrontation if it's a hero versus a villain i'll have like an idea of about where it's at why they're fighting what the emotions are and then i'll go to the start of the fight where i put all the pieces in play and then i will try to basically get from point a to point b and uh sometimes get in trouble when it's clear that point b is never going to arrive unless i break a lot of things um but usually then i'll just start tweaking things either the start or the end until I get a concise little path of battles and conflicts going from where everyone started to the big epic payoff that I want people to have. And then usually that payoff stays the same, you know, not in my early books, but definitely now. So I definitely see both perspectives. It can sometimes be fun just being like, oh, main character A is dead now. Well, time to replot all of books two and three. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I reckon I haven't written enough books yet to, to know my method in general. <laughs> but I've certainly had a few different um, ways of writing fight scenes. A couple of times I've had like a kind of a theme for this fight is going to be between these people 
and it's going to be in the dark, um, for example, um, because I know that there's something I want to use about those characters um, that makes that interesting. Um, or in the case of um, my second book where I had written an, a, a book and then had to write an entirely different book, but wanted to use some of the things from, um, from the first failed draft. Um, and a couple of times that thing was, this was a really cool ending thematically to a confrontation. How can I use that again? Noting that I no longer have that character, for example. Um, so in that case, I had a, a whole fight scene that I, I wrote only knowing the end point um, because I wanted to use the same thematic ending, the, the, the thing that was important to the character. I'm trying to do this without spoilers. Um, <laughs> the, the thing that I wanted the main character to do um, because it tied into the broader theme of the book, um, uh, I had to recreate with, with a different opponent. Um, and so that one I definitely reverse engineered. But in terms of actual writing it, usually what happens is my character in a situation and then I work out, if I was this person, what's the next thing that I would do in this situation? And so I work through the fight, like literally like, a, like I'm in it, um, as in, you know, we're in a tunnel in the semi-light and there's water and what would I do to distract this person to get here and how would I, where would I want to be and so on. And so I kind of plot it out like that. So I might know what the end, the end point will be, but in terms of how the actual fight goes, I try to work out like, yeah, legit, what would, what would I do? Anybody else have any thoughts, Alex? Yeah, I think I'm I'm still learning um, exactly what I do. I, I do tend to be a bit more uh, shoot by the hip. I think uh, on the guard gardener side of things overall as a writer, um, I don't I'm not really good at outlining. I, I probably should be better. I'm I'm not good yet. Um, I as far as the fight scenes, I generally know what's going to happen. I I, I kind of treat them a lot like any scene where I kind of just I, I I need to know somewhat um, what what my goal is, but that that's not always the case. Um, there there are scenes and, and fights where characters have have lost um, that I thought were going to win, and it works out better, um, and then it might come out in editing. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a mix on that. Uh, I think I'm somewhere on that that in the middle of that spectrum. Jeremy mentioned. Yeah, that's um, next question from John Bob. Is there anything in particular you have to consider when incorporating magic or futuristic tech into a fight? Does it fit within your world and the rules that you have created within the world? If yes, go for it. Go nuts. You got. You have to adjust everything in your world for your tech, though. Or your magic, right? So, so my big pet peeve with with this is soldiers that are stupid, right? And I'm gonna I'm gonna pick Robert Jordan, okay? Because and, and look, God rest his soul, he was infinitely more successful than I will ever be. Let me just say that up front. But his battle scenes were ridiculous, right? Where these magicians are chewing up tens and tens of thousands of guys, soldiers, right? Just regular soldiers getting chewed up by magic, and the soldiers don't change what they do. They just march to their own death and they don't try to do anything different. They don't run away, um, which is just completely unrealistic. Soldier, you know, every every person in a fight has a response mechanism that <laughs> they're gonna to try to save their own life at some point. 
even the most disciplined soldiers in the world are only going to walk into machine guns for, for a minute before they figure out, hey, this is a really bad idea. I shouldn't walk directly into the machine gun, right? I mean, you, you do have points in history. You, you have the charge of the Light Brigade in, in 1939 where, where that actually happens, or not even 1939, wrong, wrong war. Um, 1950, um, where, where you have the charge of the light brigade and they run into this the machine gun and they haven't seen it before and it kills everybody. But you're only going to do that so many times and for so long before you evolve your tactics, whether you want to or not, because your soldiers are going to start doing something different. Like the more, and, and if you look at the history of warfare, sorry, good history nerd, masters in military history, sorry. I'm going to nerd out for a second. If you look at the history of the warfare, the more dangerous the weapons get, the farther apart everybody on the battlefield spreads. Okay? So the more dangerous it gets, the further apart you've got to get because you can kill more people with one shot. And if you had magic or you have tech that is going to allow you to kill a whole bunch of people, if they get too close together, they're not going to get too close together anymore over time, unless it's the first time they've seen it in which case they won't react and they'll all die. But they're going to react to the new things on the battlefield. So if you have cool new tech, but you're still fighting it with modern tactics or any tactics really that don't make sense for that tech, then it becomes unrealistic. Also, I'll just throw that hand grenade out into the room and you guys can go. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I guess it's the same as like people not using their pre-established magical abilities in fights as well because it's not convenient to the plot for them to be able to do this thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's very annoying. <laughs> 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 Sometimes it's just you can tell the writers is like, I need them to not use this and they haven't really bothered to provide a, um, an in-world reason why they can't use the power that we've already established that they have to end this quickly or whatever. Um, and so, you know, if you get yourself in that situation, you have to you have to think of a reason why the person can't do the thing that the reader already knows that they can do. Otherwise, it's going to feel, again, unrealistic in the sense of realism. We also that call that the last scene in Suicide Squad. <laughs> <laughs> Where she's like the most powerful person on earth and decides to instead to fight them with karate. <laughs> Um, going a little bit back away from Michael's grenade and more to what Rob was saying, um, I do. I'm very big fan of establishing rules and laying and basically playing within them. Uh, in my uh, in my world, like there's no magic because it's all space opera. Uh, well, yeah, it, it really within the boundaries. You know, space opera is basically fantasy in some ways. But um, but what I'm saying is that. I discovered pretty early on that there's only so much fun and variety you can have if people are just shooting at each other. If there's just gun warfare, there's only so much variety in the combat. And so I decided to add, you know, axes, knives, blades, shivs, and that sort of thing. And, but a lot, some people responses were, well, it's the future. They're in space. Why are they all pulling out swords? And the answer to that is my answer. Anyway, that armor has shields that can deflect gunfire but it can't deflect blades because you can just stab someone straight through and it goes through the armor. And so that was kind of my way around it. And so I was able to have scenes where people were hacking at each other and having these sword 
sword duels and sword fights, that sort of thing, even though they also have mach- plasma cannons and light rifles and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I'm very much within basically establish your rules, stick with them, and you should very much be fine. Uh, honestly, I apply to the rule of cool if it's fun. If it's cool, if it's interesting, I go with that. I'm not too worried about um, about the dy- the what we the quote unquote realistic dynamics of it. I, as Sam was saying, I want it to be more believable than anything. And if I can just set those ground rules, then that's all I need to really think about. Like for me, the big thing is to try and avoid something kind of tied to what Michael brought up in that, like, why aren't people reacting to this? You know, if these wizards can blow up an army, why is the army not reacting to the wizard? And that's tied to a personal pet peeve of mine of when someone has something that's super powerful or good or amazing, but they use it exactly once and then never again. (laughs) Like, oh, I could obliterate this army with this spell and I do it for this big moment to win. And then the rest of the movie series or trilogy or whatever, I just happen to forget I have that ability. And so when, you know, people only use epic things once and then forget them with amnesia that they can blow up armies, of course the armies don't evolve or change because they're not only encountering it when the author gets stuck and decides to pull it out. So generally for me, because I've got warfare, I've got like wizards, standard D&D wizards that could blow up armies. Generally, the safeguard is you put them on both sides. And then you have the crazy powerful people fighting the other crazy powerful people while the lower power level people fight the other lower powerful people. And then you make sure you have characters in both sets that the creator cares about so you can bounce between them and make them care about all aspects of a big fight. And then if you have like a smaller duel, like you know, if you have a wizard versus a wizard duel, you can have a lot of fun and go crazy and have ice versus fire and blow stuff up and whatnot. And then you just try to remember that everything you do, everything you reveal, like, oh, this tech, they can, like, oh, this person has leg blown off, but look, they can reattach it and put this goo on it and everything's fine. Everything you do, you have to acknowledge that someone's going to know where it is the next time something similar happens. Every tech, every spell, every magic you do, uh, Harry Potter and little time turner thing is the perfect example of that. If you can go back in time to fix things, why aren't you doing it to solve the problem in part one, part two, part three, part four, part five? Why is it only done and forgotten? So if you're going to blow stuff up with a fireball, make sure that people still know that a fireball exists later. You're going to heal people, have cleric magic, giant mechs. They're going to expect the giant mechs. So. It makes sense. I mean, all, in every fight scene, all you need to do is make sure that your name, your mother's name is Martha and shout it out and you'll win. <laughs> come to an end. That's all you need. That's the magic of it. Little known fact, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, because, I mean, think about it, though, you know, going back to David's point, uh, you know, going back and looking at you, why didn't they just do this from the beginning? Well, then you just wouldn't have a story. <laughs> you're not going to fix it. And you're done in five pages. You know, it's, it's arguably though, you don't have a story. That's the point. Yeah. <laughs> it is your responsibility yeah. telling the story to not introduce something that breaks your own story. True. <laughs> like, so, I mean, yeah, obviously like, Oh, why don't they just go back in time and, you know, kill the villain when they're a baby? Well, I won't have a story. Like, okay, well then don't, give them the ability to go back in time, or if you do, 
put some safeguards in for like, yourself. So you can use your person then back in time to protect the first person who's from the person that's gone back in time and oh, it's terminated. Exactly. And then you, and then you get like... This is why I will never play around with time travel. I can't stand time travel. <laughs> that's a minefield. I never... Unless it's Bill and Ted where it's just like, aha, I went back in time and prepared uh, this key in my pocket. That's the exception. Yeah. <laughs> you guys ruined my next question. I was going to ask, does everybody enjoy time travel? <laughs> I actually love time travel. It'd be hard to write, but I have a real weakness for it in storytelling. If it's really? even, even if it's even if it's flawed, I just enjoy it. I like Chairman it. Chairman Hurley did a very good job with it. Yeah, the light brigade. Yeah, I'm actually yeah. reading that now. That's yeah, that's a very interesting use of it. She I'm not going it. She to did a very, it. very good job of it. Gracious. Uh, <laughs> so I've got a I've got a cheesy question like I had at the beginning because we haven't asked a super cheesy one in a while. So uh, oh would you rather have a sword and a firearm, or, or sorry, sorry, a sword or a firearm in a fight? <clears throat> you know which would win, but I'd ask you: Would you rather be in a sword fight or a firefight? Well, so, I know how to use a sword, and I don't know how to use a gun, so it's easy for me. <laughs> guns are point and click. Swords, you have to like have skill and stuff. So, guns, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, because you gotta think, you know, sword, swords like hack and slash, right? You know, if you feel you use it, you just at least just kind of do this motion, and you might. You can you also might, continue to run away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you just do this and you run. <laughs> Depends on your opponent, right? I think. How many times? How many times out of a hundred does a skilled uh, someone who's good, who's practiced in a skilled sword fighter, beat an untrained sword fighter? A hundred? Okay, with a gun, it's not a hundred. So if I'm the guy with yeah. less skill, I want to be in a gunfight because it ain't a hundred. I'm gonna pick sword because I can probably outrun the person with the sword, and I don't think I can outrun a bullet. So yeah, I'm just throwing the weapon down and running. So like higher <laughs> odds with the blades. So. <laughs> I'm just going to pick that, uh, that scene in the first Indiana Jones movie at the marketplace where the guy just gets his sword out, does all the moves. Indiana Jones is like, I'm done with this. Bang. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes the opponent has the same weapon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if they've got a sword and I can choose, yeah. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, H had it ended on a cheesy question. So but, uh, I just want to, I want to, first of all, thank you all for being here, but I want to go ahead and go through, um, starting with David. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about what you got going on right now? Do you have any new releases, anything upcoming? And then where can new readers start with your books? Uh, this Voidbreaker comes out in February 8th, I believe, if I remember right. Uh, this is the third book in the trilogy. The first book, Soul Keeper, is a great way to start into it. It's probably the series I'm currently most proud of. So uh, that would be the Keepers trilogy, starting with Soul Keeper. That would be my recommendation. And also thanks for having me here. Absolutely. Mike? Um, my third book, which is called Colony Side, which is the third book in a loose trilogy, um, same characters, not necessarily same story, um, came out on December 29th, so just four weeks ago. And if you want to start, the first book in the series is, i got to take my hand off the P, Planet Side, which, you know, I should have thought this through, blue book, uh, blue background. But, um, yeah, that's my, that's my series, and you can start. And then my next book starts a new series. Awesome. Uh, Mike's books are excellent, and I recommend the audio. 
yeah. Really good audio. Oh, yeah, I have RC Bray. So if you like, if you're an audiobook nerd, definitely get that. Absolutely, Jeremy. Yeah, my book Stormblood is came out as I said earlier this earlier last year. It is the only book that I've had published. So, and it's the first in a series. So I imagine you're going to have to go with that anyway. Um, yeah, it's a, as I said, it's the first of a trilogy. This sequel is out later this year, and the third book, hopefully, the year after that. And um, yeah, it's you know crazy cyberpunk space opera. So then the and yeah it's available in audiobook colin mace does the audio so if you're into that uh and i know that dave yeah i david really likes the audiobook as a reaction so yeah, yeah that's good like, colin mace is amazing yeah i would call it i would call jeremy's book more military sci-fi than space opera so if you're a military yeah. sci-fi fan i could definitely recommend it uh, he does the fight scenes and stuff really good he has the cool the cool tech like I had to reassess my life as a writer after I read how it is the rule of cool. Like, I don't know if any of that crap would work, but it's just <laughs> cool as hell, man. No, it's not going to work. But book two is a lot more space opera. Don't worry. It's a lot more weird alien stuff in there. But yeah, it's the, it, yeah, it, the mass market paperback just came out this week and came out yesterday in Australia. So if you wanted to get that one, you, you can get it. Sam. Um, my, my books, I left, I changed rooms because of internet connection, so I can't show you the cover anymore. Um, but my books are City of Lies and Hollow Empire. They're a duology. The second book just came out in December. Um, so you can get it anywhere. Um, you can get it on audio, except for if you're in the UK or Australia, in which case you can't get the second book on audio. Sorry. Um, uh, so there are fantasy, epic fantasy, murder mystery, political thrillers, kind of. Um, so pretty low magic. Um, the first one's structured like a closed room murder mystery, and the second one's more of a political thriller. Um, so lots of kind of intrigue and skullduggery and uh, poisonings and um, uh, mystery rather than um, big kind of fantasy set pieces. Um, but I think they're fun. And although there's not a hell of a lot of fighting in it, the fighting is very informed by my own experiences. <laughs> I told about I told about the scene where she fights a bird when you were off when you had been you got oh, dumped off. I told where she fights the bird. <laughs> when I saw the question pop up before my internet connection went down, I was like, "Does it count if a bird attacks someone?" <laughs> I also lost a scene from the, the the version that didn't get um, that didn't make it through. I had a whole. Princess Bride tribute with um, uh, terrifying shark eels, which I had to lose, and that was very sad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rob. Okay, well, uh, we'll see if this works because, as I say, no paper copies yet. But there you go. There's uh, oh, God, there we go. Pawn's Gambit reflecting all of you people in the screen as well look at that it's beautiful uh that's that's my latest book that came out uh just yesterday it's the second standalone book in the mortal techniques universe which is basically a love letter written to martial art films anime and i mean this one's got a lot of sort of chinese fantasy vibes in it as well so uh yes pawns gambit buy it now <laughs> alex yeah i just got my new cover i just actually just got the the paperback of that same Felix, artist actually is Felix Ortiz. Yeah, Felix did a great yeah, job. It's kind of driving me crazy though, because the second book in my series is 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 not going to be updated for maybe two months or or as soon as Felix and Sean can get to work on that. So they'll be a little out of sync, but but I'll live with it. Uh, um, but uh, Combat Codes is is a uh, it's a dystopian uh, martial arts 
gladiatorial um, epic. And uh, yeah, that's it. Awesome. Well, uh, just first of all, thank you all so much for, for taking the time out of the day to come chat. Uh, Fight Club <laughs> and all things in between. Uh, especially, especially the uh, especially the eels that Rob liked to mention making it into a dragon. Uh, but uh, and and also thank you to everybody who tuned in to uh, to our little panel. But uh, stay tuned uh, because in just about forty four minutes, uh, our last panel of the day, the joys or lack thereof of editing, that should be just a blast because <laughs> uh, I know everybody that's going to be on it is going to just love talking about editing. But uh, check that out and make sure to check out the rest of the panels this week. But again, for everybody here, just thank you all so much for, for, for taking the time out. Thanks, David. Thank I appreciate you. it. Thank you. Thanks, David.